Let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come on and fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away Hotels, of course, sprung up overnight around the area. And um, as you're quite aware, we have um, our first class hotels like Dromolin Castle, Clare Inn. Um, we have Bunretta Complex, which everybody is, is, is quite familiar with. All the little shops that have sprung up, supermarkets, bigger, bigger shops. Um, Limerick City itself and Ennis in our own Clare, they've all expanded due to actual Shannon Airport, which all developed from Ranana. I, I went there in the early 40s, 43, and uh, became the first, what I was to call then, controller of sales and catering, set up the first restaurants, uh, which were in the beginning serving the passengers from the flying boats. And, uh, very rapidly, as you know, within, within one year, in fact, flying boats were... Um, outclassed by the land planes and uh, we moved to across the river to the land plane base in Rhinana and uh, I became the chief executive of a very big organization applying to a thousand people more than more than half the employees at the airport and uh, sales and catering became the dynamic element of commercialism at the airport and I walked directly to the Department of Industry and Commerce. I was stationed there in, for two years uh, of the war and uh, the base was of great strategic importance so we had, uh, we had a fighter squad in there to defend the base and we would have been able to defend it until of course we, we, we wouldn't be outnumbered but it was so small. But it was, uh, to me then, it was a kind of, it, it, it was an oasis because um, it was a very modern field with, with, with excellent runways. And even in the 50s, uh, most of Europe hadn't recovered uh, from the war, so there were not good airfields to land on. They were out there. And a lot of them didn't have uh, the landing as the Shannon had. Captain Aidan Quigley, Army Air Corps, during the war, later to become chief pilot at Aer Lingus, before that Mary Halpin and Brendan O'Regan, all seminally bound up from its inception with Shannon Airport, as was journalist Arthur Quinlan. Well, I was earning so little money in Dublin as a, as a freelance and a casual journalist, uh, the Irish Times, I said there must be a better way of earning a living than that. I looked at how much money I was getting, how little money I was getting. So I came down to Shannon in September 1945 with more money in retainers alone from British papers and Irish papers than had the editor of the Irish Times at that time, Bertie Smiley. I had kind of an inner track there as well because, uh, funny enough, my the, the main construction of the base at Dublin and Shannon, particularly Shannon, was started by an uncle of mine who had come back from India and he was uh, building, uh, laying railway tracks in Burma. 
And he started there, so I was kind of in at the beginning, even as a kid. I could see what was going on there. Or they were way ahead of the time. They're way ahead of the time, and, and the remnants of ahead of the time is there, and they were unfortunately caught with the, uh, the transition in safety. Everybody conceived that over the ocean, you must be in a flying boat. And, of course, that was nonsense, because the land planes were eventually just were far safer in terms of, uh, you know, if the flying boat going to its destination couldn't get down because of stormy waters, where did you go? So they even had, had as you saw down there, they had the uh, a terminal for, for seaplanes. And it, it was envisaged that, that one would transfer to the other. I mean, that, that was way ahead of... of uh, way ahead of everybody else, because in, in the latter days before the war, they were still at the nonsense of anchored islands in mid-ocean. Well, I was brought up in Quinn, which is only 16 miles away from the airport as a boy. I brought up there, went to school there. I knew exactly. I followed the, the, the early development of, of, of Ranan, as it was called then. And I knew, I told the, ed, the various news editors that there was going to be, the great news centre was going to be this place called Ranana, which they never heard, most never heard of before, the next few years. And they, 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 they took a chance and let me in on it. So that's what I did. I used to work 20 hours a day, crawl up in an armchair, then sleep for a few hours. So the last airplane went through at midnight. The first one would come back eastbound at four in the morning. And then I got to know everybody, and they got to know me at, at, at Shannon. The great celebrities from Vyshinsk, Kurumiko, the Anthony Eden, all the various people that floating through. The National Airline, of course, began, as you know, in the in the in 47 and uh, at the under the inter-party government. In fact, I flew on one of the of their proving flights to New York, but uh, it was uh, uh, not not sustained at that time, and uh, um, because the government of the day thought it would lose lose money, which they couldn't afford to lose, and began I think almost ten years later. I remember the first interview that I went for was with Aer Lingus, and another Limerick fellow and myself cycled to the airport. Uh, where we were interviewed and had the same type of interview by the same gentleman. I sat through the interview to the end, but uh, the fellow who was with me got browned off halfway through it and he told the gentleman who was interviewing us that uh, it wasn't a clerk he wanted, it was a horse with bloody good handwriting. Sean Fielding, one of the first airline employees. Issuing of tickets, passenger handling, uh, possibly flight dispatch, uh, baggage handling when the rush was on, loading of aircraft, looking after food requirements, and if necessary, cleaning the cabin of the aircraft. But we were being hired as clerks. I suppose to look at it now, it's unbelievable when you remember the types of aircraft that were there at the time and uh, how small the area was where these aircraft were parked. Uh, the aeroplanes themselves were small. Uh, the DC-4, for instance, carried 38 passengers. And, and strangely enough, because of the time taken to fly the Atlantic, uh, they had multiple crews and in some cases had eight or ten crew on board with bunks for crew to rest. I, I would have to say that the, the uh, Boeing Stratocruiser, that, that, was, that was some airplane. 
Now, that was the epitome of style in the four-engine uh, uh, piston uh, age. The airplane was massive. It had two decks, it had uh, bunks, it had men's toilets, it had ladies' toilets, it had a dining room. Magnificent airplane. The first commercial airplane, as you know, was, came in on that afternoon of the 24th of October, 1945, the Wednesday afternoon, I remember. But we only had a, a plane on a Wednesday and a Friday for a long time. Then it was a gradual build-up. Of, of aircraft. They were the old Skymasters. Uh, they never had more than, than, than f 12, 14, 15 passengers on board. Uh, they had all f fuel and, and crew. You had more crew sometimes on, on, on the planes than you had passengers in those, those days. But everybody came true because uh, every aircraft, anybody going from Europe to America had to stop off at Shannon. The airplane had to refuel. And on the way back again, they just got into Shannon, refueled again, and headed on out for London and Paris, Rome, etc., and out to the Middle East. It and Aer Lingus were the, uh, our first entry into the international scene as the first generation of free Irish men and women, you might say, to show that we could compete with the world's best. And we, we did it very quickly. And it should be a, a great assurance, I, I'd say, to Irish men and women that uh, we were able, at the very beginning, to compete through Aer Lingus and through Shannon and Dublin Airport with the, the British and the French and the Germans, the Americans, on even terms. And in fact, uh, uh, Shannon became very early on the, the best airport on the North Atlantic, was so recognised as such highest quality of the food and service and the friendliest airport, and still is, I think. Catering service was run by, by the British Airways in those days. And suddenly, Mr. Layden, Department of, of uh, Industry and Commerce, and of course, uh, uh, Sean Lamass, who was the minister, decided that why should, why should the catering here be done by, by, by a British airline? So then they looked for somebody, and Brendan was, was at that time a manager in the Stevens Green Club in Dublin, where they used to eat at our, our dine there, and they got to know him. And they asked him one how he'd like the job, and he eventually did, came down, took it over. Uh, we got a very good chef to begin with, Joe Sheridan, uh, who came from Dublin. He was in the Dolphin, I think, and uh, he was an imaginative man. He's the man who... Uh, uh, was imaginative enough to conceive Irish coffee, for instance, and lots of other things at the same time. Uh, he was a remarkable man. He had... Uh, I, Brendan's uh, great quality was, I think, that he could recognise uh, uh, qualities in people. And he picked staff, he picked his people, uh, he got them around him, and he had this great way of manipulating people. I don't mean manipulate, I mean it in, in the best possible way, getting the best out of people. And uh, I once remember one of the staff saying to me at that time, he said, the one thing about Brendan O'Regan is he always sent people home with full bellies and empty pockets. One was conscious of him as being the uncrowned king of the region, uh, and he reached into uh, all sorts of detailed aspects of activities in Shannon. Uh, he was alleged to have been personally involved in the construction of the first cottage in the Bunratty Folk Park, and there was all sorts of stories about him, uh, of his particular detailed interest, and he had the aura of being accessible, whether or not he was or not, I don't know, but people believed him to be accessible, and he conveyed the impression of accessibility and concern for details. Colm de Barra, who came as a young man, one of the early workers, to the industrial estate. 
you used to have these meetings uh, with the residents in Shannon who were affectionately known as the tenants at uh, the Shannon Industrial Estate. Uh, the tenant, that is the housing estate. And he, he, he and his, the managers of the Shannon Fear for Development Company would uh, confront the tenants or residents and answer their queries and questions about the potholes and the telephones and the roads and whatever was concerning the people. And on one of these meetings, a, a member of the audience stood up and complained that the price of a haircut in Shannon was four and ninepence, and it was two and sixpence in Limerick. And O'Regan took the microphone and said, as and from tomorrow, the price of a haircut in Shannon is two and sixpence. So he was prepared to directly intervene uh, to... Um, convince people that this was the right place to be and this is where it was happening and he had power and I think that was the essential uh, ingredient that he had he had authority he had power whether it was given to him by the government or whether he assumed it is immaterial the point was that he was a, a pole of power to which people could relate and therefore neither his staff in the development company nor for that matter the people living and working in Shannon were alienated from the process of development and it was this, I think this is what inspired the place, that there was no, there was this uh, lack of alienation of what was going on. We were all young, and it was a new experience, and, and, and flying was glamour. And you saw glamour, you know, you looked down the, the whole passenger area, and there was glamour and money and wealth. You know, you had Americans who were immensely wealthy, would come in on the President's special, and they would, you know, they'd have, just have so much money to spend. Tonight, we ask you to cross the great drawbridge of Bonratty Castle and make merry within its walls. This is the bite of friendship. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the salt and eat it. This guarantees your safety within the castle. Arwina Ushla, Folcheroiv Gokashlan Bonratty. Let us raise our goblets in toast to the Earl of Thomond. Slauncher is sale, health and long life to you. You were also there to do one thing, and that was imbued in you. What, you sh what picture you gave and what picture you showed was the picture that they were going to see of Ireland, and it was terribly important. That you, that you gave the right picture, and that you smiled, and you told people that, of course, they would have to see Ireland. That it was an ancient culture, and a, an important culture, it was Celtic, and that we had in this, in Ireland, what, what was not in the rest of Europe, and it was up to you to tell them. Uh, that, that, that came, of course, from Brendan O'Regan. <laughs> saddest sights we'd ever, had ever seen were in those early days, the, the 40s, particularly in the early 50s. The people from the west of Ireland, from Mayo, from Mayo and Connemara and parts of Clare, with their, with their suitcases and they, they leaving, leaving, and, uh, leaving their old parents behind. And the, and the, these west wakes, there were, there were parties going on right to the, to the night, the night, because very often they'd leave in the early hours of the morning and they'd have sing songs and be crying and drinking and drinking and crying. and But they were forgetting, of course, that now they're only within uh, uh, six or eight hours away and that they'd be back again. It was unlike the old days when they left the ships and they never came back. But uh, they did come back. But it was a very sad sight. Indeed. In fact, I can remember 
seeing whole families leaving in those days. I was once offered a house in the west of Ireland uh, for, for £200, but I didn't take it. I'm glad I didn't anyway. Uh, people just turning the key and leaving the house behind. General Marshall, the United States Secretary of State, uh, man of Stuart the Marshall aid. I do remember him one day with an Irish coffee, and he had his wife, and he had the arms around her, and he was forcing her to drink. She says, "You know, George, that's the first uh, that's the first time I've tasted alcohol in forty years." But he he was so taken by by an Irish coffee that he would pour it down her throat. <laughs> I remember uh, being uh, one time. At, uh, invited to a reception in Washington, Quincy Rooms in Washington, and the Secretary of State at that, that time was Dean Rusk. And I remember being in the long line, there were 140 European journalists and two Irish journalists, and I, one of them. And uh, he was introducing everybody, or, and then he said, oh, it's Mr. Shannon. And he called me Mr. Shannon, then somebody else corrected and said, Mr. Quinlan from Shannon. And he, he had known me, but he didn't know my name, he just remembered uh, Shannon. So that was a great, great help for me. When Lindbergh came through, Shannon. Now, as you know, he didn't speak to the, the press, but uh, there was this general story that it was Lindbergh who picked out the site for Shannon. Of course, he didn't do any such thing. All he did was to ratify it and give it the, give it the OK on behalf of Pan American, who was the chosen instrument for the US government. But I went up to, to Lindbergh and I used a bit of blarney in saying we're so delighted to meet him because he was the person who, who was responsible for the setting up of this Shannon Airport. He was very pleased to be given that honour too. And he, he chatted at great length. And I said, by the way, I said, uh, my name is Arthur Quinlan. I represent the Irish Times and the a national broadcasting station. I saw him move back a little bit, but I had, a, by this time, had established myself with him. And he continued. We chatted and talked for a long, long time. I don't think he's spoken to her. From the time he's dead, I don't think he spoke out to a journalist. And, and then there was, of course, Colonel Paul Popovich, the, the Russian astronaut. He was a remarkable fellow. He his charm, although he hadn't a word of English, he joked with the girls in the shop and he flashed his gold, gold teeth. Then there was, uh, as I said already, Carlo Menzenti. A remarkable man, too. I got to know Gromyko very well at that time. Uh, he was a splendid person. Uh, he was the first academic, as you know, to come into the, the Soviet politics. They brought him in. He was a member of the Soviet Academy of Science. But I hadn't seen him for... for for thirty, for almost thirty years, when he came back a few years ago into, to Shannon, and I do remember this time we have all the security. We weren't allowed in to to, to to mingle with him, and people were kept away. And suddenly he saw me, and he he came over after he and he said, "I'm delighted to see you, Mr. Kamiko. You know, it's been thirty years since since you were here. Thirty-three years since you were here last." And uh, he turned then to, to Brian Lennon, who was Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time. He said, we were trying to remember how long it was since I was here last. I said, yes, I remember very well. It was just five days after the death of your Mr. Stalin uh, that you came through, Shannon. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, where they're found to contain cargoes of offense... It was difficult to get near Castro. I had this man stopping me. He was one of the people who had a, a pair of shoulders that you could play handball up against and then he hadn't a word of English. So I then said, look, I said, I, I would like to talk to him. After all, I, I have interviewed uh, Che Guevara, Dr. Che Guevara, and I would like to speak to you, Mr. Castro. He recognized the che Guevara's name because he's a great hero in, 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 in Cuba. And then a little man who was known as the, the Commandant of the, of the Revolution came up to me, who spoke an Amer American-educated uh, uh, Cuban general. And uh, 
but he had heard of to say he brought me in and introduced me to Castro and Castro and uh, that was the first time I met him but several times afterwards we became great friends and when he posed he posed with his arms around me a photograph taken by his his uh, Cuban uh, photographer we got those pictures back afterwards then he proceeded to met him to, to uh, sip some Irish coffee and uh, later he wanted to try his hand at making it and I do remember this chap called uh, Ryan uh, John Ryan in the in the, in the bar and I asked him Said, what kind of effort did Castro make if they make of Irish coffee? He said to me, Mr. Quinlan, he's the best Irish coffee maker that I have ever come across. <laughs> we are not at this time, however, denying the necessities of life, as the Soviets attempted to do in their Berlin blockade of 1948. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military buildup. The foreign minister Simply of the Simply where OAS Shannon lies, it lies on the extreme west of the continent of Europe and it's the nearest terminal point from America. So that makes it of interest uh, to, the to the Americans and in fact while I was doing the research I came across a very detailed map by the Central Intelligence Agency showing the strategic position of Ireland on North Atlantic air routes which implies that the Americans always had a military interest in Shannon. Dr. Ian McCabe, author of A Diplomatic History of Ireland. Immediately following the conclusion of the International Civil Aviation Conference in Chicago around about the end of 1944, the United States government ne negotiated with the Irish government one of its first bilateral air transport agreements. Now, the conclusion of this agreement was, at that particular time, was considered highly important and strategic to the Americans because it was felt that it would strengthen the position of the government in subsequent negotiations. Now, why it happened that they negotiated directly with Ireland was simply this. They had hoped to have a multilateral agreement with such countries, in particular as Great Britain. But Great Britain was behind in aeronautical um, developments and um, Roosevelt later accused Great Britain of deliberately upsetting uh, a multilateral arrangement. So the Americans negotiated a bilateral agreement with Ireland. Um, so, so it proved useful to have this first step uh, so it could negotiate other similar agreements with countries like Spain. During the height of the Cuban crisis, the Irish, according to this paper, were most cooperative with the United States government and searched all Eastern Bloc air traffic transiting Shannon. And it also states that recently the Irish expressed the desire to suspend the search but have continued it at our request. And this was in June 1963, some time after the Cuban crisis. Mr. President, <coughs> has been the greatest day of my life to be on this platform today and to welcome here to Shannon the President of the, the great United States, a man of Irish descent. It would be a great privilege for me to welcome any President of your great country. But to welcome a man, the son of an Irish immigrant, is something that should send a thrill of joy through the heart of any Irish man and woman all over the world. <laughs> I ask you, Mr. President, to accept this as a token to me on behalf of the Clare County Council, and I will read the inscription for you. Presented by the Clare County Council on behalf of the people of Clare to John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 
President of the United States of America on his visit to Shannon Airport, County Clare, Ireland, the 29th of June, 1963. I ask you, Mr. President. <laughs> There is this feeling that America knows that Shannon has been loyal to them. This has been proven time and time again. For example, in all the major crises that one can think of in the last um, 40 years, for example, the Berlin Airlift Crisis, uh, Korea in 1950, in 1967 the Six-Day War, and Yom Kippur in 1973, and even as late as uh, 1990 during the, um, the Gulf Crisis, and later Shannon was of technical assistance. Now, it may not have been indispensable, but the Americans used Shannon um, possibly on the periphery, but they established a foothold there using, if you like, a, a gradual incrementalism that allows uh, a greater use of Shannon in the future and makes it more difficult for the Irish government to refuse it. In fact, they've sort of obtained squatters' rights in Shannon by stealth, if you like. And the unfortunate point, for, I, I think, is that the Irish government haven't been open about this. They've been very benevolent and they haven't gained the material benefits that they ought to gain. The airport basically means my life, my livelihood, our livelihood now. Before I got married, I worked, as we called it, in the base, in sales and catering. And then when the um, industrial estates developed, I worked with De Beers for a very short while before I got married. My husband and I bought a pub in Newmarket in Fergus and it boomed due to the fact that everybody in the locality worked in Shannon. And then when I was capable of taking it over, Mike got a job as an airport police officer. And our kids have grown up in the environment of the airport and some of them are working there now. What he was doing was, at that, day, at that time, it wasn't the jets with the threat to Shannon, it was the long-range DC-7s and, and, the, and the stretched uh, aircraft. They were the danger to Shannon, he knew that. So what he, what, he, what he was aiming at was to set up a structure at Shannon which would make it necessary for aircraft to come in and, and to come into Shannon, come in for, for bring freight aircraft in. And then the new town uh, uh, sprung up after that. And uh, you have today a town of almost 10,000 people, which is, uh, all came out of what O'Regan's ideas. Mind you, he had other bright people around him who were able to develop those ideas. Yeah. Liam, I can remember Jack Ryan, who died quite recently. Jack was the man who, who succeeded uh, Brendan O'Regan. Then there were people like Jack Lynch, a man, a, a forgotten man living out in Killaloo now. He was an, an accountant. He was the man of figures. He's the man who kept them on the rails and watched the figures. Jack Lynch. Then, as uh, I said, uh, Jack Ryan was also an accountant. Liam Skelly came in. Uh, we remembered Liam as, as a Tipperary hurler at that time. He came in, young man. And I can see a great similarity between Liam and the way he has... The way he, I, I can remember how he got uh, around the, the Soviet foreign minister uh, one day in the lounge and the, the Soviet uh, minister of finance coming through Shannon. He showed him the shops. I brought them around. And I always remember the, the Soviet Minister of Finance asked him how much money in foreign currency do you earn in this shop? And he was staggered at the amount of money that was there in there. 
and that sent him off and that's what made it so easy when Arianta then began to sell the idea of these uh, handing the shops in, in, in Moscow that's what made it easy he did all the, 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 the footwork in Shannon and they saw the tangible work that, w that was there and that was but but it was Skelly who had this uh, uh, he also has a great charisma about him he he could uh, inspire confidence in people too which is what exactly what O'Regan did it started in the early 80s with Aeroflot coming back, transiting Shannon. Uh, we haven't built a fuel farm for them. Uh, it saved them hard currency expenditure. They were able to tanker in gallons, millions of gallons of fuel, which we put on board their aircraft. And so it has uh, been a major saving. Throughout the 80s, the level of transits increased. Then, uh, I suppose, in 1987, we heard that the Soviet, uh, as the Soviet economy was in a poor state, that the idea of uh, inviting in new know-how, new technology, and the idea of giant ventures was passed by the USSR Council of Ministers. We decided to pitch for duty-free operation as being a very important method of earning currency. Uh, we had other, they had other suitors such as Pan American, JAL, the Japanese Airlines and many others. But we were successful and we t explained to them that we, were in, we would be in a long-term partnership with them. We opened shops in record time and now we have our most important operation, I suppose, is at the main international airport in Moscow and we do very big turnover and big business. We're doing about uh, $45 million at the moment in these two shops. We also have arrivals, duty-free shops there. We have a broad range of international products where possible. We try to put on display the best of Irish goods. We have about 60 people. Irish people over there on a semi-permanent basis working in that giant venture and with there are about 250 Soviets working alongside them. Olive worked in Moscow with Irinka for um, a period of time and Siobhan was working in New York and when they um, were both at home together and a particular day one had to fly east and one had to fly west within a matter of hours. The idea, first of all, to the Soviets that having to work at all was a bit of an anathema to them. They were, they were not paid for working um, harder or anything, so we had to introduce an incentive. We had to tell them that it was important to, to please customers. Uh, they had to know something about uh, wholesaling. They didn't understand that you it cost you things and that you must sell at a profit and add on added value to what you're selling. Uh, we uh, brought some of them to Ireland in the initial stages to Shannon and they were to set up a comprehensive training program for them. And now, of course, we won the duty-free award as being the best uh, retailer in the world in 1989 and part of it was the friendliness of the staff and with so many Russians working there everybody was amazed that they could smile and be so efficient and I think the training has stood, uh, stood to them and uh, we continue with the training programs. <laughs> Johnny McMahon and uh, Bud Clancy, uh, Stephen Garvey, 
uh, and a few Dublin bands, and all the big English bands came to Limerick that time as well. I remember particularly here in Limerick, uh, when crew members would come into a dance in town, uh, the ordinary guys wouldn't get a look in at all that night, so you'd be standing on the sidelines for the night if you had a few crew, crew members around with that. Some of them, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd you know, put the fun of it, you see, you'd go along with it all, and but then there were amazing the amount of the, the really really serious ones, which you, after a while, you got to sort out, you know. And uh, I, I, there was one particular one sticks very much in my mind, where this um, this very wealthy Englishman asked me to go and uh, work in the states, uh, and this was a one for real, you know. There were ones that we used to joke about and have a bit of gas about, and uh, this was for real, and. Uh, at the time, uh, it was, uh, you know, I got, I got a, a month to make up my mind and uh, I just said, no, I wouldn't go, you know. It was, it's one of these things that you think about. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't think that you didn't do the right thing. You know you did the right thing, but you, you romantically think about it. <laughs> First uh, fatal air crash in the history of civil aviation in Ireland was the Star of Cairo, which in on the 28th of, of December 1946, crashed into the, the Inish Macnaughton just down the Shannon. That was a, a very sad one. Uh, the airplane came in from Paris. First of all, uh, a mist that night. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, the, and it went round again. Next time, it caught fire, and, uh, an engine caught fire in the air, and then it came, overshot the runway, went straight in, uh, and uh, I think it was 12 people were killed in that airplane that time. But Captain Tansey, the pilot, he escaped. But the remarkable thing of that, some hours afterwards, uh, people were, were, were searching for, for, for the, the bodies. They heard a crying in the, in the rushes, and a four-month-old baby uh, was found in the rushes crying. All the babies suffered, suffered a fractured, fractured femur, and that was all. The baby, baby survived afterwards in the hospital in Ennis. The most dramatic one, of course, of all, was the KLM crash in 1954, 3rd of September 1954, Captain Verily. That was the one that everybody remembers, because the one reason why people remember it so well, not because it was such a dramatic one, but it was a very bad job of public relations done there. The plane took off, and Captain Verily thought he was rising, but he wasn't. He was sitting down gradually till he went into the, into the lagoon, went to, or sorry, went into the, into the estuary, and never came up. Now, I remember in the small hours of the morning, uh, a navigator came in covered in mud, and he was the navigator on the on the airplane. And then everybody went to look for it. But of course, Shannon knew the plane was was missing, but they didn't tell anybody. They knew it had not come up into on radar, but they gave the impression that they didn't know the thing had crashed. So afterwards, Shannon's the public relations attitude of of, of the department changed then, and now the, 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 the whole thing has been sorted out. Also, KLM themselves handled that crash very badly. Because if you ask anybody today what crash do you remember, they always remember the KLM crash. Because it was so badly handled by the Dutch. Uh, there was a new president of KLM then uh, who wanted everything, st uh, he wanted no publicity for it. Well, how could, you, how could you avoid publicity on an air crash? And then I remember it was almost at an end, and one day we asked him, uh, the only chance were there diamonds on board. He said, I, I don't know. He said, there could be a million pounds, a million dollars worth of diamonds aboard for all I know. 
And then the story started again. There could have been a million dollars worth of diamonds on board, said the president of KLM, and off the story went again. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. De Beers, uh, as such, was established uh, quite a few, about four or five years before I uh, arrived here. So it, it already had an established reputation. And uh, I suppose as an index of uh, relative prosperity, uh, my first day on the job, it was pointed out to me that on looking out the window, one could see five motor cars. And this uh, constituted um, a great symbol of wealth and prosperity that a company could have five motor vehicles parked outside, two of which were actually owned by employees, the others were company vehicles. Um, this given that the company then employed about 100 people. Uh, in those days, the big scene outside the factories every evening was fleets of buses carrying people uh, out to the hinterland, of, out to Foynes or Tipperary, up to Labashida, and so on. Today, just approaching 900 employees uh, with a huge car park. In fact, car parking is a, quite a pr problem. We now have problem of, let's say, urban prosperity, uh, where the hares were meant to run up and down between the runways. We are viewing this vast building of uh, Shannon Aerospace, which is well under construction at the moment, and we have the airport um, directly in front of us, and as you will see, we have the main runway now lit up for an approaching aircraft. And all this land in bygone days was marshy land. It was, it was waterlogged and we have the river and the Shannon just out there ahead of us. Um, small farming land, as you can see, a lot of crag, but good for cattle. And um, in, in those days, I mean, people had to paint on their cattle and drive them out the gates for to make their few bob for Christmas and grow their vegetables and everything, which was the general lie of the land all around the country. The, the significance of Shannon uh, if it is to attribute to insignificance, is not so much to be found it by, by counting heads and looking at what happens adjacent to the airport. I think the significance of it is that it broke the rules of uh, development, economic development in Ireland. Instead of having the always, always just things happening around the capital and clustering in there, huddling together at Dublin, that somebody had the vision, the leadership to break the rules, to just rely primarily on the resources of the people themselves who could be attracted to this enterprise. There was no other natural resource other than the strategic location of the airport. Um, everything else had to be just built up from scratch. Um, and this, I think, has been achieved, that there's now a sort of a technological um, dimension to life in the Midwest. And probably uh, the development of the Limerick University and the, all the other attendant developments in Limerick and the region would not have taken place had not the experiment at Shannon worked out successfully. So the spin-off is actually to be seen in the spirit of people uh, look at the skyline of Limerick has been totally transformed, not to mention Ennis being transformed and all the villages around uh, Clare have been transformed uh, because there is the ingredient of, I suppose, hope and expectation of the future. Uh, it, it just changed everything. <laughs> 